Let's take a look at the Word of God. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. This is part two of uh, a two-part sermon. Uh, so we're in a series in the book of Romans. And before I left, that's three weeks ago now, um, I preached the first half of this. So I'm going to have to do a little review to, to remind us what we've already covered and then uh, do the second half of this sermon. So the first part will be kind of the same. If you weren't here uh, for the first half, at least you'll get enough information. But I would encourage you to go back online, listen to that sermon in, in total. Romans chapter 1, would you please stand? I'm going to be reading verses 15 through 17. This is the Word of God. So, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the Word of God. This is Paul's thesis statement for the book of Romans. This is a summary of the book of Romans. Uh, this is what we're going to be looking at for the next many months as we go through this amazing letter that God inspired so many years ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at, at, at these verses, we thank You that You spoke through the Apostle Paul and You have written Your words down through his pen through his quill, and you have preserved his word and translated it for us, or your word, and translated it for us so that we can benefit from it and glorify you. I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, fill me, uh, speak through me, that my words may faithfully capture your word. And we pray that you would glorify yourself and build up this church. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. As I said a few weeks ago, these verses are very challenging for a number of reasons. He packs so much in. If you were to summarize the book of Romans, I don't know that you could do it this concisely, and yet that's what Paul does in the power of the Holy Spirit. So every word is just filled with significance, uh, such to the point that we're not going to be able to unpack all of the significance of these verses even in two weeks of preaching. Uh, the second reason that these verses are challenging is because the syntax is awkward. It's not easy to read. The first part of the letter is fairly easy to read, especially if you look at verses 8 through 14. It, it, it just reads very plainly. I, I, I want to come to Rome. I've been trying to get to Rome. I'm thankful for you. I'm praying for you, and so on. That's really easy to understand. Maybe not easy to, to understand the significance for us, but as far as the original intent, the original meaning, not hard to understand. And then we get to verse 15, which itself is not difficult to understand. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. It's not a hard thing to understand. But then verses 16 and 17 become more difficult. Uh, with verse 15 as our main idea, 
And th this is where sometimes our Bibles do us a disservice. There shouldn't be a heading between verse 15 and verse 16. Because verses 16 and 17 give us four subordinate clauses. And what is a subordinate clause? It's just a phrase that depends on the phrase that comes before it. So it, it gives further clarification, further uh, meaning to the one before it. So, so there's four further explanatory clauses that help us to understand what Paul is thinking in verse 15. Verse 15, I want to come to Rome. I want to preach the gospel to you. And that really is the whole point of the book of Romans, right? I'm not in Rome, so I'm going to send the gospel to you. Read the book of Romans, and it'll be as if I am preaching the gospel to you. The book of Romans is the, the most complete expression of Paul's understanding of the gospel. So verse 15, I, I wish I was with you. If I was with you, I would preach the book of Romans, basically is what he says. Now, in verse 16, we get four clauses that are fleshing out what's in his mind, what's in his heart when he says that about desiring to preach the gospel in Rome. Let me just go through them. Number one, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Number two, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you'll remember Greek there means non-Jew, not person from Greece. Jew and non-Jew. Number three, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And the fourth clause, the fourth subordinate clause, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, as we read through this, these four, 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 as, doesn't immediately compute in our minds what Paul is trying to say. And that's intentional. It's intentionally awkward because in Greek, if you write with a main idea and then flesh it out with subordinate clauses, what you're saying is this is really important. I want you to see this. This, the, this doesn't flow off the tongue. It doesn't jump off the page in an easy-to-understand way. That's the point. Go back and read it again and again and again until you understand what I am saying. And I said before that this is like Paul writing in bold font or all caps. Get this. Now, if we were to rewrite this, or if I was to say this to you a different way, if I was to remove the subordinate clauses, what I have to do is uh, read it and repeat certain things. So let me read to you a, in, a, in, a, in a fuller expression what Paul is saying in these verses. Saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's, remember, that's the main idea. Everything else is trying to help us to understand why Paul is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. So then the next thing that he says, he says, I'm, and this is where I have to repeat. So if I take the four at the beginning and I replace it, I would say, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome because there's a reason I want to preach the gospel to you. And that reason is I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's not hard to understand. I want to preach the gospel to you because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If I were ashamed of the gospel, I wouldn't be eager to preach it to you. And 
we don't have time to revisit this, but we said that not being ashamed is different than loving. You can love the gospel and still be ashamed of it. You can be embarrassed of it. You can be too shy to preach it. He's, not only does Paul love it, he's not ashamed of it. He wants to preach it. Okay, moving down a level, we repeat that. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. I want to preach the gospel because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the gospel that saves people. It's, it's through the gospel that God shows his power to save people. Who? What kind of people? Everyone. Just anyone? Everyone? Everyone who believes. Is this only for Jews? No, it's for Jews and it's also for non-Jews. That's what he says. Going down a level yet, Paul's going to expand on that point. He says the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So you might ask, how does the gospel save? How does God exercise his power through the gospel to save Jews and Gentiles? Well, the answer comes in this third clause, which we're going to look at in more detail today. Well, somehow, and we're going to look at this, somehow, it's through the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. We'll talk about what that means. But first, let's go to our last level. In it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith because it was written down long ago, the righteous shall live by faith. This is where Paul ends. Paul, Paul ends with this idea is, in case you wonder if I'm creating a new religion, in case you wonder if I'm coming up with some new way of salvation, I want to remind you that God has always used the gospel to reveal his righteousness by faith. It was written down hundreds of years ago that the righteous shall live by faith. This is in the Jewish scriptures. We're going to look at that today. So last time, we looked at the first two of these subordinate clauses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, and we unpacked that, and we looked at, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This week, we're going to look at the last two of these subordinate clauses. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that catches us up. That's a quick summary of last week leading into this week. To get more on that, go back and listen to last, uh, the last sermon in Romans. Let's now just read again to, to get our place as we pick up in verse 17. Let's read verses 15 and 16 again. I'm eager, says Paul, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it's the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. As I said at this point, this is the question that should be in our minds. How, Paul, how is the gospel, the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes? How is it that God expresses His power through the gospel? And, and again, I guess we have to go back into our last sermon on this. It's counterintuitive to say such a thing because the gospel is that Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man, died on a cross. It doesn't seem like power. It seems like weakness and failure. That's the scandal of the cross. That's why the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. How can you express power through the cross? And what we talked about last time is that it's through the cross that the righteousness of God is satisfied because Jesus Christ, though He is not a sinner and never was a sinner, bore the punishment for our sin. So it's the only way that God could save us. God cannot just forgive us for our sins. He has to shed blood. He has to kill someone for our sins. He is powerless to forgive us our sins without killing us. This is a shocking idea in our culture. Here, and here's the thing about this. In the Old Covenant, you would kill a lamb or a goat or a ram or a bull. But what animal is valuable enough to actually satisfy God's wrath against my sin? None. So what we learn in, well, it's evident in the Old Covenant too, but what we learn explicitly, for example, in the book of Hebrews, is that the blood of bulls and goats and rams and lambs could never take away sin. Okay, because they're animals. Well, what about a human being? What about if, if we could just get a man to die in the place of other men? This is where the idea of child sacrifice comes up in pagan religions, by the way. It's at least tangentially related to this, is that one will suffer for the benefit of the rest. What's the problem with that pagan system? Even that innocent child isn't valuable enough to satisfy the wrath of God against my sin. And just for the record, God hates that whole system. He says it doesn't work and it, it unjustly condemns that innocent child. Innocent from the sense of that child can never take away sin, so don't put that child in that position. And so then we are forced to realize that while it must be a man who dies for us, this man must be valuable enough to die in our place. So this man must be God because only God is valuable enough as a sacrifice for my sin. So that's again borrowing from last week. Let's take a look at this week. How is it that the power of God for salvation, uh, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? And that's where this, Paul says, well, let me tell you. For, that is, this is how. This is how that works. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith 
for faith. Now, in order to understand what Paul is saying here, we have to ask three questions. Number one, what is the righteousness of God? Number two, what does it mean for the righteousness of God to be revealed? And number three, what does from faith for faith mean? If, if we're going to understand how the gospel is the power of God for salvation, we have to answer these three questions. So let's just go through them. Uh, number one, what is the righteousness of God? This is tricky because it can mean two things. The righteousness of God is an attribute of God. That is, who is God and what is God like? Well, we could say a lot of different things about God. One thing that we say about God is God is righteous, meaning he's morally perfect and he cannot put up with injustice. It's an attribute of God. God is always just and he cannot and will not tolerate forever injustice. That's an attribute of God. That might be what Paul is talking about, but it's probably not getting directly to it. Rather, context, context immediately, because we get the from faith for faith, which we'll talk about in a minute. But more than that, the whole book of Romans would suggest that that's not primarily what Paul is talking about here. We're not talking about God revealing his righteousness as an attribute. Why not? At the final judgment, if Christ had never come, God would reveal his righteousness then, there, that way. That is, all of the sinners of the world, all of us, would be raised back to life and we'd be lined up from oldest to youngest and one at a time God would condemn us and in condemning us reveal his attribute of righteousness. I'm a just God. I cannot and will not tolerate sin and injustice forever. And it's true that aspects of the gospel talk about the final judgment, but contextually, when Paul's talking about the gospel, at the end of verse 16, it's the power of God for, not judgment, but salvation. So God can and God will reveal the attribute of righteousness by judgment. That's not primarily what Paul is talking about here. Because the context is not judgment, but salvation. So what's he talking about? What is the righteousness of God in this verse? Paul's talking about a righteousness not of God, but a, a righteousness that comes from God. What's the difference? A righteousness of God, that's an attribute, versus a righteousness that comes from God. What Paul's talking about here is a righteousness of, that comes from God and is given to those Jews and Greeks that are saved. Therefore, this is a righteousness that comes from God that is given as a gift to those people in verse 16 who believe. It's an alien righteousness given to us as a gift. That's what the gospel is. The gospel says you are a sinner, but through the cross of Christ, 
the righteousness of God, which is an attribute, is going to be bundled up and given to you so that it becomes yours. That's amazing. That is astounding that a sinner could receive and take possession of the righteousness of God. So this righteousness does not come from anything inside us. It's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from God, not from me. But it becomes my righteousness. I take possession of it, and so do you. How? Well, we're going to get from faith, from faith for faith, but, but even verse 16, by believing. By believing. And this righteousness comes to us from God as a gift. Which leads us to our second question. What does it mean for the righteousness of God to be revealed? When I think about the word reveal, I think about a, a Christmas present. The present is concealed because it's wrapped up. I want to reveal the present, so I unwrap it. I uncover it. Or if I'm uh, in bed trying to sleep in a little bit and my daughter gets up, she will reveal me by pulling the covers off and pulling on me to get me out of bed. That's a revealing. But that's not the kind of revealing that Paul's talking about here. It's not like unwrapping a gift or throwing the covers off your bed. It's not to make uh, visible that which is not visible. That's not what Paul is saying here. Rather, Paul is describing an actual manifestation of righteousness. The revealing of God's righteousness in us is a revealing that comes about when we act righteously. We manifest in us a righteousness that's not native to us, but has been given to us by God. That is, we stop acting like sinners. That's what the gospel's all about. And this is where, in the months ahead, we're going to push reformed evangelicals, which we are. We are very good at positional righteousness. We understand justification. That's Romans 4 and 5. Justification is a legal declaration. God declares us to be righteous. That is, we, we were under, sitting under the verdict of guilty, but, but because Jesus died in our place, we now stand under the legal verdict of not guilty. That's justification. That's a wonderful aspect of the gospel. I mean, it's so great to know that when God looks at me, he doesn't see a guilty sinner. He sees a righteous saint positionally, that is, legally, that is, my status under the law of God is not a sinner. That's a beautiful part to the gospel, but that's not it. See, as Reformed Christians, we sort of stopped there. And I don't want to negate that, and I don't want to ever say that that's not precious. 
and something to embrace. But that's not the end of the gospel because there's a revealing of the righteousness of God that comes along with the declaration of righteousness from God. And the revealing of the righteousness of God is the manifestation of righteousness in our very natures. We're not just declared saints. We become saints. We don't just get, to use theological language, we don't, we don't just get the, the righteousness of God imputed to us. That's justification. That is, uh, it's, it's, it's said to be true of us, but we get the holiness of God imparted to us. What's the difference between imputation and uh, impartation? Imputation just means that this is a, a, a category, uh, a positional reality in which you live. You don't actually become more righteous when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. All you get, when I say all, it's a big deal, and it's good, but all you get in the imputation of righteousness is the status of righteous. But the gospel's more than a status. It's more than a label. As glorious as that is, it's a new birth. It's a remaking of our very natures, which starts at that moment that we're saved. And God, God circumcises our hearts. What does that mean? Without getting too graphic, you can read between the lines circumcision is cutting something off and throwing it away the circumcision of our hearts is that it, he, god doesn't cut the sin out of us totally but in, in the center of who we are that's our heart our control center he cuts the sin out and throws it away so that we now from the center of who we are have the ability in our very nature to manifest to reveal through our actions, the righteousness of God that had been at one time alien and foreign to us. That's amazing. And that's, that's Romans 6 and 7. And this revealing of the righteousness of God is partial in this life, right? Because as I said, God doesn't remove our, all of our sin tendencies. In the more outer aspects of who we are, maybe the outer aspects of the heart, I don't know, but definitely in, in us, we all know that we still desire sin, right? So this revealing of the righteousness of God by working it into our very nature, kneading it into us as, it, as you would knead leaven into dough, is not complete in this life. We still desire sin, we still sin, but at the center of who we are, we desire righteousness. We've been made obedient from the heart. It's Romans 7. But Romans 8 continues and says there will come a time when we will perfectly reveal the righteousness of God in our very nature. It's all about glorification. That is, the righteousness of God through the gospel is revealed when we are raised from the dead in glory. There won't be a trace of sin in us. If we don't become God, we don't get absorbed into a great nirvana. We don't become part of the Borg if you're into Star Trek. We, we, we maintain our individuality. I will always be me and you will always be you. But 
the part of you and me that was inclined to sin will be gone. And in our resurrected glory, when we live in super physical bodies, in a new heavens and a new earth, we will, for the remainder of our days, which will never end, day after day, age after age, reveal in our conduct and behavior a righteousness that belongs to God and has been given to us. That's, that's amazing. So it's not just about being declared righteous legally. It's about becoming righteous from the inside out. And the gospel will do this. Which brings us to our third question on this point. What does from faith for faith mean? Paul is being intentionally redundant. And this amazing thing that I've just described to you that the book of Romans is going to tease out in greater detail is a work of faith. You can't, you can't add to it with your own works or merit. It's the faith that we have in the gospel. It's the faith that we have in God the Father who sent His Son. It's the faith we have in that Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is co-eternal and co-divine with the Father and the Spirit, who took on flesh to become one of us, who never sinned, who, who took our sin into his body and died on the cross, was buried in the ground, and on the third day rose to eternal life, and is still a man even while he is glorious God. It's the faith we have in the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us to convict us of sin and righteousness and to work these things out in our lives as we work with Him to further reveal the righteousness of God at work in us, all by faith. You can't earn this. No one is good enough for this. But you believe in God. You look to Christ and you become more and more and more and more like the one that you're gazing upon. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Uh, yes, we have to work at it. Yes, we toil and struggle. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the transformation comes not primarily in our effort, but by gazing upon our Savior and our God. And as we look at Him, as we look to Him, as we see Him in the Scriptures, we find that we're being changed. This is a work that happens from faith for faith. Faith is our food. Faith brings it about. Faith starts it. Faith ends it. And you know, in a trillion years, when you've been raised from the dead, and all of the pain, and all of the suffering, and all of the sin of your life is a long, distant memory, do you know what will still be fueling your glorified body? Will you be able to eat? Yes. Will you be able to drink? Yes. But food and drink will no longer be needed to fuel our super physical bodies as we need food and drink today. Our bodies, physical, super physical, will be fueled, sustained, strengthened, made immortal by faith. Faith. Therefore, this righteousness that comes from God to believers, 
being manifested in us is entirely by our faith alone. You cannot top up what God has given to you as a gift. Though we partner with the Holy Spirit to bring about these things. And what what I want to challenge us by way of application in this, if this is true, and it is, if these things are true, why do we struggle so much against our flesh? Let us be a people who reveals the righteousness of God. Because by faith He has given us new birth. We are new creatures. The old heart that was polluted with sin against God, who hated God, has been transformed by faith into a heart that loves God and is righteous. So why do we live in our flesh? What is that sin? that besets you day after day week after week year after year decade after decade what is that sin you don't have to be held bondage to that sin you're a new creature reveal the righteousness of God in you you were made for so much more than this. And I, I feel this myself. I, I am in a phase of life where I desire to throw off the things that don't even satisfy anyway. I, pleasure, yes. Lasting satisfaction, no. So let us be a people who reveals the righteousness of God. You don't think that's possible? You think, well, that sin's too strong? Have faith. It is not by trying to stop sinning that you will stop sinning, but by gazing upon the one who saved you. Have faith in him. Desire more for your life than that sin. Look to him and the things that you could do for him. Uh, Imagine what kind of a church we could be for him and for God. And if we, if we don't look at our sin, if we stop navel-gazing at the thing that holds us back and look at what has God promised us in the gospel, we'll change. The sin will melt off us like wax to the flame. To summarize to this point then, Paul's eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Why is he eager to preach? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And why is he not ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. Jew. Gentile. How is the gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? Well, it's because through the gospel, by grace through faith, that God manifests his righteousness in us. Amazing. Which takes us to one final question is Paul preaching some new means of salvation should this strike the ear of a first century Jew as something totally innovative brand new 
And that's why this last part, you can't just skip over it. It's really important to Paul's ministry and to our understanding of the gospel. The gospel is not a new covenant idea. The new covenant brings all of the promises of the gospel to their fruition. But the gospel is an old covenant idea. That's why he says, it was written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is not new. I'm not making this up. This has always been God's means of salvation. And we see at the end of uh, Romans 17 there, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Because God's not changing His mind. It has always been that way, as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. Not works. Where was the righteousness shall live by faith written? And what does it mean? This is our last question of the morning. It was written in Habakkuk 2.4. Not a lot of us are very familiar with Habakkuk 2.4. So let me just sort of summarize it for you. It's, it's there that, the prophet, or that God says to the prophet, the righteous shall live by faith. Now what I don't like, what sometimes Christians do is they say Paul has plucked this out of Habakkuk and sort of borrowed it without thinking about any of the context. So he, he found a, a, a sentence that he liked and then he totally changed its meaning. That's not true. In order to understand what it means for the righteous to live by faith, we have to understand what it meant for God to say it to the prophet. Habakkuk lived in the 6th century B.C. And if you'll remember in the 6th century B.C., uh, there was total corruption of Israel. Uh, or of Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel had been totally devastated and exiled by the Assyrians. Now all that was left was Judah and at the time of Habakkuk all that was left was the city of Jerusalem. And Habakkuk the prophet is trying to, to bring about a reformation in Jerusalem. He's preaching the law of God and the Torah and he's calling people back to the righteousness of God but it's not working. The more he preaches, the less people listen to him. And not even the leaders will listen. The Levitical priests won't listen to him. The kings won't listen to him. There's corruption in the temple. There's corruption in the courts. There's corruption in the crown. And so the prophet goes before God and he pours out his heart and he says, God, I'm, I'm preaching. And nothing's coming about. All I see is more and more corruption and sin and evil. And then the prophet pushes God and says, so do something about it. Now what the prophet's thinking is, he's thinking, God, you can change men's hearts. Change the heart of the king. Change the heart of the chief priest. That, that's where Habakkuk is coming from. And then God answers Habakkuk and he says, I will do something about it. In fact, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to whistle for the Babylonians. It's a ruthless people. And they're going to come and they're going to mercilessly kill almost all of you. And they're going to tear down your city. And they're going to tear down my temple. And they're going to carry a small remnant into exile in Babylon. And the prophet says, oh Lord, no, that, that cannot be. 
the answer. That's not what I was asking. I wasn't coming to you to ask you to tear them down. I want you to build us up. I want to see greater righteousness in your people. And then the prophet says, remember your promises. Remember that you have promised to be our God and we your people. You have promised eternally a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have promised to keep a king on the throne to David. You cannot do this thing, God. So you see this battle between God and the prophet. And that's the context for the righteous shall live by faith. God comes back to Habakkuk a second time. He says, oh, Habakkuk, you're not wrong. And I will keep my covenant, but I'm going to do it my own way. And it's going to start by me tearing down my people and carrying them into exile. And before Habakkuk could protest a second time, God says, trust me. I know what I am doing. Have faith. It's really important for us because God doesn't always do for us what we think God ought to do for us. Life is hard. And sometimes God will tear down your life. Can you have faith? In those seasons, trusting that all of the promises of God to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to David and through Jesus Christ will come to pass if you have to give your very life for the gospel. Can you believe that you'll be raised back to life? That's the kind of faith that reveals the righteousness of God. None of this cheap grace get out of hell and then live like the pagans do. So when Paul quotes Habakkuk, he knows exactly what he's saying. This beautiful gospel is available to everyone who believes, Jews and Gentiles. The the righteousness of God will be revealed in, uh, in us. It will be manifested in us. We will be made righteous like God in glory, in resurrection. But you need a quality kind of faith that even when your life is being torn down, you still believe. Anything less than that is just counterfeit. And I am afraid that there are many, many people in Canada, in North America, in our churches that don't have this kind of faith. I can't worry about all the other churches, but my heart grieves for you. Do we have this kind of faith, a faith that would stand and endure through the most difficult seasons of life because that's the kind of faith that will ensure that we see one another in glory. We cannot be satisfied as a church to have the kind of faith that gets us out of hell so that we can just go on living our lives with or without Jesus day by day. 
If Jesus isn't our everything, we don't have this kind of faith. If the Toronto Blue Jays mean more to you than the Gospel, then you are not saved. If any episode on Netflix means more to any of us than the Gospel of Jesus Christ, then we're not saved. We need a deep, real kind of faith. And without that faith, it's just counterfeit. So let me ask each one of us as I close, if God were to tear down our lives the way he tore down Habakkuk's life, would we be found righteous? That is, would we have faith? Or do we just have a cheap imitation kind of faith? You know what? I don't know that we can actually answer that question which is why sometimes God tears down our lives to reveal what is really there. And it's in those times that you need a church to walk with, cry with. To sum up then, this is what the book of Romans is all about. A righteousness that comes from God to believers is being manifested in us entirely and only on account of our faith, which is in keeping with God's economy of salvation in the Old Testament Scriptures. Let us not be found counterfeit, but let us endure until the end. One more time. This is the book of Romans. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed in us from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what we're going to look at over the next many months as we go through the book of Romans. Praise be to God and his glorious gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray for this church. I pray that you would give us real, deep, righteous-making faith. And if there's any counterfeit faith here, Lord, reveal it so that we might repent and truly believe in the only one who saves. I pray this in the name of our Savior and our King. Amen.